So, you know, we worked our way through the pastoral epistles, and I, as I was praying about what the Lord might like us to do next, I thought it'd be good to move on to a gospel. And there's a reason I went to John. For, for some people, John is a simple gospel. If you look at the way that it's written in the Greek, it's actually considered the, the simplest language in the New Testament. John was kind of simple in the way that he wrote. He didn't use a lot of complicated words. But to be honest with you, when you study John, it's probably some of the most profound thoughts within the New Testament and within the whole Bible. And as a matter of fact, Martin Luther, speaking about the book of John and John's writing, says, never in my life have I read a book written in simpler words than this, and yet the words are inexpressible. So as we turn our hearts and our minds to this book, I want you to kind of think of the, the setting when John wrote this. Understand the way the church was being set up in the first century, that you had people like Paul, you had Timothy, you had Titus, and a host of other missionaries. They were out moving the gospel forward. Well, John, he stayed back in Jerusalem, and if you will, he protected the church in Jerusalem. He became a defender of the faith. He was one who fought against false doctrine that was coming into the church. He took a stand against that. Now, John, his first letters were 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote those around A.D. 65. But the synoptic gospels had already been written. They were written somewhere in the A.D. 50s. And so when John writes this book, it's about 40 years later. He writes it somewhere around A.D. 50. And so what John is doing here is he's going to express some things that hadn't already been expressed in the other gospels. Now, Matthew, when he wrote his gospel... He wrote it from a, from a Jewish perspective. He wanted to, to bring in this perspective from a, a Hebrew point of view. And his primary theme was Jesus is king. When Mark wrote his gospel, he, he didn't really want to present it from a Hebrew perspective. He wanted to come at it from the perspective of a servant, that Jesus is a, a servant. If, if you read Mark, the book of Mark moves very quickly. As a matter of fact, the word immediately is in there a lot. And he just kind of moves from, from point to point. Mark's primary theme is the Son of God that came to seek, serve, and save the lost. Luke presented Christ as the perfect man. He wants to let people know that he is God in the flesh, but he's kind of focusing on the humanity of Christ. And Luke's main theme is the Son of Man that came to redeem humanity. And then here we have John. And John wrote it from Ephesus. By that time, he had already left the island of Patmos. He was probably in Ephesus when he wrote this, somewhere around AD 90. And there's different challenges in the church at this time. The church is no longer really facing the challenges of direct persecution, but they were facing issues within the church, philosophical corruption, doctrinal corruption. And so he took a stand against those things. So John wrote his gospel so that people would know and believe that Jesus is God. The other Gospels were very clear. He's a king, he's a servant, he's a son of man. But what John's going to do this morning, is he's going to bring this message that Jesus is God from the very first verse. He's just going to bring it home. So I want to pray for this message. Because if you're here this morning, and you do not understand that Jesus is God, you do not know him. This is Jesus of the Bible. There is no other. And to be saved and to have a relationship with God, you must understand that Jesus is God. So I want to pray for God's truth to be revealed. Let's pray. Father, I pray for this message this morning, that you would bring it in power. And this message, Lord, that, 
that you laid on John's heart through the work of your Holy Spirit. May, may our hearts be open to this message, Lord. Father, we're, we want to lift up um, our missionaries, Lord, and the honeycuts in Slovenia. Father, we bring them before you. We, we, we know that you called them. We thank you for them. And Father, they're bringing the truth just as John did. And I pray, Lord, that as uh, we take a look at this verse, these passages, these verses within John, that, that we would see with clarity the, the reality that you came as a man, but fully God. May that uh, be clear to us now, I pray in Jesus' name. I want to read for you the theme of John. This is John chapter 20, verse 31. John said this, he said, but these things I have written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is John's theme, that Jesus is the Son of God or God in the flesh. Let's read the text, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light it shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, who is Jesus? This is what John is trying to answer. And first, we see that Jesus is eternal God. Jesus is eternal God. Jesus is not a created being. He has no beginning or end. Jesus has always been as God. I want you to take a look at the verses again. I'm going to read them, and then I'm going to kind of dive in here. John 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So you understand the way John separated this book out. He, he kind of had two sections in chapters 1 through 12, John's going to go through the ministry of Jesus. It's going to be about the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. But starting in verse 13, all the way to verse, I mean, not verse, but chapter 13 to chapter 21, John looks at the private ministry of Jesus with his disciples, and he looks at the last four days, really, of uh, Thursday with the Passover, moving into the crucifixion, and then the resurrection. And there's a little epilogue in in chapter 21, that kind of deals with those 40 days after when Jesus was resurrected in chapter 21. So the first sections, chapters 1 through 12, highlight the miracles of Jesus, and 13 through 21 record his discourses with the disciples. And so John begins this section right here with Jesus as the living logos, or what we would say is the living word. Logos is the Greek word for that word, word. And that term came from a Greek nobleman in Ephesus 500 years before Christ. His name was Heraclitus. Now, this idea of the Logos that he taught is that there is a rational structure, one ordering principle that is over all the universe. And according to this theory, the laws of physics, mathematics, reason, and even morality are all tracked back to this one ordering principle. And he called this one ordering principle the Logos or the Word. Some other Greek philosophers kind of got this idea of this logos, this word. The Stoics particularly added that it's really kind of a, a life-giving force that, that is kind of present within all the universe, but it's an impersonal force. It's very much like Star Wars. That whole idea, Luke, the force, Luke, that kind of deal. 
It's an impersonal force, a power or whatever, but it's not anything tangible. And then Philo in 20 BC to 50 AD, he was a Jewish philosopher. He was influenced by Plato. And he kind of took this logos idea that it was God's creative principle in the realm of pure thought, but it wasn't connected to anything physical in the realm of matter. The only way I can explain that is like thoughts floating in air. And then every once in a while, a person will have this thought hit them and they think, wow, what is that? It's this emanation, if you will, this thought that's been floating around. Well, this was all present from these philosophers in Ephesus at this time, and these thoughts were beginning to influence the church. And so John, in wanting to write this gospel, particularly to bring home this idea that Jesus is God, he wants to make a connection to the Greek mind, to make this connection there. And so if you will, he does a bridge using this idea of the logos. But the Greeks, they never would have thought that the logos would ever become flesh, And so John brings in this new idea of the word becoming flesh. And so if you look at verse 1 again, he says, In the beginning was the word. So the idea is that the word was in the beginning. What John is really getting at here is that the word is eternal. It has no beginning. It has no end. In eternity past, before there was anything, Jesus is. Jesus has always been. Now, the verb that's translated was, it's in the imperfect tense in the Greek, it's eme. So a little rendering of this is, in the beginning, the word was existing. Or you could say, in the beginning, the word was already existing. James Boyce, he's a commentator, he said this. He said, in the first book of, the, of, the, of Genesis, the phrase is used of the beginning of creation. It says, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. The use of the phrase in John's gospel goes beyond that, for John says that when you begin to talk about Jesus Christ, you can do so properly only when you go back beyond his earthly life, back beyond the beginnings of creation into eternity. That is where Jesus was. So what John does here, he carefully crafts this first sentence, and he's very careful in the way that he arranges these words because he doesn't want anybody to have any misunderstanding. When they read that, they will know that Jesus is eternal, Jesus is God. That Greek term logos, then it refers to an uncreated divine mind that gives meaning to the order and to universe. And so Johnny co-ops that idea. And with this concept, with these pagan philosophers, he takes it and he builds in that this divine mind is God and this God is Jesus Christ. So in the beginning was the eternal word. We need to understand that Jesus is the eternal word. He is the logos. He has always been. He always will be. As a matter of fact, Jesus, right before he went to his trial on the cross, he said this in John 17, 25. He said, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Jesus understood that he was sent by the Father. God sent his only son that he may pay the price for our sin. He came out of eternity here into time and space. And then John adds, and the word was with God. And the word was with God. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now this means a lot more than that the word was just kind of hanging out with God. This word has a lot of intimacy to it. The word with, it's a preposition from the Greek, the Greek word pros, 
And it describes a relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Literally, that Greek word pros has this idea of a face-to-face communication between two individuals that are very close. You, you literally could translate this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face-to-face with God. Now, Jesus explained this when he first wrote 1 John. In his first three verses, he kind of explains this. He says, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 3, he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we've seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and he was manifested to us. What we have seen and we heard, we proclaim to you also that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the eternal word. He is God the Son, the second member of the Trinity. He's co-equal. He's co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Micah, 700 years before Christ, he prophesied about this coming one, this eternal one. Listen to Micah in Micah 5.2. He says, but as for you, Bethlehem Epaphrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be the ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago. From the days of eternity. Jesus is from the days of eternity. Jesus was never created. Jesus has always been. He has eternally existed as God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. In perfect unity. In perfect love. He left the glory of heaven. He came to this earth. Now Paul the Apostle wanted to make very clear why he came. And he speaks very clearly about this. In Philippians chapter 2, listen to Paul speak about Jesus. Philippians 2, 6 through 10, he says, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not, he did not regard equality with God to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and also under the earth. And Jesus, again, right before he went to the cross, in his final prayer, he said this in John 17, 5, he says, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus Christ. And if you believe anything different, anything different, it is a different Jesus. If you do not have your faith in Jesus as God, God the Son, then you are lost in your sin. You must believe this. John is writing that with that kind of intensity. Do you believe this? Jesus wasn't only a good man. Jesus is the God-man. And with that, he has the power to forgive sin. And then he ends it with, and the Word was God. The Word was God. Four words in the Greek, four words in the English. Theos in halagas. This is the clearest, most direct, direct declaration that Jesus is God. Literally, you could say, and God was the Word. 
the word was God. And once that was penned, and once that was circulated around the churches, literally all hell broke loose. And false teachers have tried to say that that doesn't say what we just heard. It's pretty simple, right? The word was God. Okay. But there have been so many people that have tried to break that down. This is a truth that we stand on as a church. This is the theology that we believe. This is the truth that God has sent forth through his son. The father and the son are distinct, but they're of the same essence. This is why Jesus could say to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because he's God. Only God can forgive sins. And so what John does is he sums up this idea about Jesus as God and he kind of flips and he says, he was with God in the beginning. He said in the, in the beginning with God and now he says and he's with God in the beginning. He's reinforcing this idea that he's always been with God. I'm gonna read to you. I found it this morning. I just thought it was really great. The person's name is Melito Sardis and he was the bishop of Sardis in AD 180 and he explains this very clearly. Let me read it to you. He says, though he, the son of God, was incorporeal, he formed for himself a body like ours. He appeared as one of the sheep, yet he remained the shepherd. He was esteemed as a servant, yet he did not renounce being a son. He was carried about in the womb of Mary, yet he was clothed in the nature of his father. He walked on earth, yet he filled heaven. He appeared as an infant, yet he did not discard his eternal nature. He was invested with a body, but he did not limit his divinity. He was esteemed poor, yet he was not divested of his riches. He needed nourishment because he was a man, yet he did not cease to nourish the entire world because he is God. He put on the likeness of a servant, yet it did not impair the likeness of his father. He was everything by his unchangeable nature. He was standing before Pilate, and at the same time he was sitting with the father. He was nailed onto a tree, and yet he was the Lord of all things. Amen. So this is what John wants us to know, that Jesus is God. And what I'm pleading with you this morning is, do you know that? Now, if you've ever read the Message Bible, it translates John 1.14 like this. It says, the word became flesh and blood, and he moved into the neighborhood. So Philip Yancey, he explains what kind of neighborhood Jesus moved into. Let me read that to you. He says, a succession of great empires tramped through the territory of Israel as if wiping the feet of the promised land. After the Assyrians and the Babylonians came the Persians, who were in turn defeated by Alexander the Great, and he was eventually followed by Antiochus Epiphanes, the Jews' worst villain until Hitler. Antiochus began waging war against the Jewish religion. He transformed the temple of God into a worship center for Zeus, and he proclaimed himself God incarnate. He flogged an aged priest to death for refusing to eat pork. In one of his most notorious acts, he sacrificed an unclean pig on the altar of the most holy place, smearing his blood around the temple sanctuary. Antiochus' actions so incensed the Jews that they rose up in an armed revolt that celebrated every year as Hanukkah. But their victory is short-lived. Before long, Roman legions marched into Palestine to squash the rebellion, and they appointed Herod their king of the Jews. After Roman conquest, nearly the entire land laid in ruins. Herod was sickly and approaching 70 when he heard rumors of a new king being born in Bethlehem. And soon the howls of grief from the families of the slain infants drowned out the angels' chorus of glory to God and peace on earth. 
First century Israel was a conquered, coward nation. This then was the neighborhood that Jesus moved into. It was a sinister place with a somber past and a fearful future that only a God-man could rescue. And the question that I have for you this morning, has this Jesus moved into your neighborhood? Is he in your life? Is he in your job? Is he even in your thoughts? Because without Jesus, God, Jesus, the God man, you do not know him. I pray that you do. Jesus is eternal God. Second thing, Jesus is also creator God. Jesus is creator God. So not only has Jesus always been, he also created everything that is. Look at verse 3, it says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So it says here that all things came into being through him. So before the manger, Jesus had, all, had created the universe and everything else, and the Bible teaches that everything is held by the power of his word. Let me read for you Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, in these last days, God spoken to us in his son whom he, the Father, appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the universe. And he is the radiance of his glory. He is the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. One scholar put it like this, speaking about Jesus. He said, Jesus Christ is responsible for creating not only the physical earth, but also time, space, force, action, and matter. Colossians 1.16 puts it like this. He says, for him, that is Jesus, All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So Jesus was in the beginning, and Jesus created everything that we know of. And then what Paul does, and he kind of changes it, and he says, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So he begins with the positive, and then he kind of gives the negative. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. What Paul's, I mean, what, what John is doing here is he's countering the false teaching of the day. And the false teaching of the day, the philosophers taught something called dualism. And what dualism was is that God is a perfect being, right? And he's good. And because he's good, he couldn't have anything to do with matter, which is the physical earth. So dualism taught that this God that they thought about had emanations, And these emanations kind of came from God, and eventually an evil emanation came from God, and it's that evil emanation that created the earth. Well, we know that that God, there's no evil with God, right? We understand that. So John, to fight that, he again comes head on, and he says, not only is Jesus God, but he also created everything. God is the creator, and Jesus being God is the creator of all things. So all creation came through Jesus Christ. Now, as Jesus did the creation, I want you to kind of think with me. Put on your thinking caps a moment. We need to understand that there's a reason the way that creation is. There is a reason when you step into beauty, you realize, wow, there's something there, right? God created it so that we would know from nature, from creation, that there is a God. There is enough knowledge from creation that every man and woman will stand before God without an excuse. 
Let me read for you Romans 1.20. It says, For that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without an excuse. This means as Jesus was creating everything, that everything that he was creating is revealing God. And it's revealing it in two important aspects. His existence and his power. His existence and his power. When you look at nature, you see his existence, his design. You see the beauty and the the intricacy of a flower. You see the majesty of the redwoods and you say, wow, there's got to be a designer. I just saw something on tornadoes. I'm saying, wow, there is a powerful God out there. You see it in a hurricane. You see it in a lightning bolt. This is to say, wow, there is a God. But there's not enough information in that creation for us to know and be saved. And so that is what we call natural revelation. And so what did God do? By his grace, he gave us what? Supernatural revelation in the word of God. So God spoke and he gave us the word of God so that we would now have supernatural revelation so that we would know the mind and the heart of God. And in this supernatural revelation, it explains who Jesus is. It explains God's plan of salvation starting all the way back in Genesis 3. It speaks about this coming one, this coming one. And it points all the way to the end in Revelation where we see, wow, look what God did. And so not only has he spoken in natural revelation, then in supernatural revelation, you know how he speaks loudest? In the incarnation. We know him, the living one, God in the flesh who has come to live with us. We can know God personally through Jesus Christ. He is both God and man. And he he brings us to God. Now I want you to understand that, that Jesus is God by his very nature and the attributes that we see lived out in Jesus while he was here on earth. I'm only going to share five of them. But all of these are the same attributes that God has. First, God is immutable. He's unchanging. Malachi 3, 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. But the scriptures teach in Hebrews that Jesus doesn't change. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus never changes. He has always been the same. He will always be the same. He is God. He is immutable. Not only that, he's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at once. That doesn't mean Jesus is a bunch of particles right now floating around. What it means is Jesus is present everywhere. He's at the right hand of the Father, but he is with us right here, right now, in fullness and wholeness. Now, this is demonstrated here in the book of John in chapter 1. I'd like you to see it. Just kind of scroll down. Look at verses 47 through 49. This idea about being omnipresent everywhere. In John chapter 1, verses 47 through 49, it says that Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, And said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Why would he say that? Because Jesus was nowhere around. Jesus being God, Jesus having this ability to be everywhere, saw him even though he was over here. He is God. In Matthew 18, 20, it says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be in their midst. And not only that, 
There are millions meeting right now and the presence of Christ is with them. Jesus made us a promise in Matthew 28, 20 where he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That promise you can take to the bank, by the way, because he's God, he cannot lie. He will be with us to the end of the age. He's immutable. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. Omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. In John 2.25, he says he knew what was in man and he did not need man's testimony. Also, when his disciples spoke about him, they said, we know that you know all things. And he does. He knows your inward thoughts. He knows you better than you know you. He knew who would reject him in John chapter 6, 64. He knew who would follow him in John chapter 10, verse 14. He knew what people were thinking. And he knew a lot of other things. He knew where the fish were in Luke chapter 5, verse 4. He knew which fish had a coin in its mouth and when they would find it in Matthew 17, 27. He knew that Lazarus had already died. And he also knew the future events in John chapter 11 for both of those. On and on I could go. But as Christians, we need to understand how important this is because Jesus knows everything. He also knows everything about you, which means he's not going to discover something really bad and kick you out. He already knows you and you're in. Take great comfort in that thought. He never changes. He's everywhere. He's all-knowing. Not only that, he's omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. He is God. He is the power of God. We already saw that he created the universe. We already saw that he holds everything by the word of his power. But he also exercised that when he was here on earth. He, he calmed the raging sea in the book of Luke, chapter 8. He cured people's diseases. He, he had control over demonic spirits. He had power over death. Think about that. He lay, raised Lazarus from the tomb. He raised the widow named son. And this omnipotence, this omnipotence we call it, this all-powerfulness, it secures us for heaven. This is why Jesus, in John chapter 10, can make that promise that he will never lose you. In John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, he says, My sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And my Father, who has given them to me, he's greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. He's immutable. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent or omnipotent. And finally, he's sovereign. Now, we know that only God is sovereign. But whenever the New Testament speaks of Jesus, it speaks of him as being sovereign. 1 Peter 3.22 says he's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subject to him. Revelation says he's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And we know from Philippians that every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. The reason this is so important that we understand that Jesus is God and not only that, that he is creator God, is because many people, particularly in our day, believe that they're really smart and that they cannot believe that God is actually the creator. They think it's an evolutionary, what, process. But they take kind of a pride thought in that, that they're really smart and so they must really have a handle on it. But I just want to share with you some really smart people over the ages that understood this idea about God being creator. Copernicus, he's 16th century, said this. He's an astronomer. He says, who could live in close contact with the most consummate order and divine wisdom and not feel drawn to the loftiest of aspirations? 
Who could not adore the architect of all things, being God? Jonas Kepler, he's 17th century. He's one of the history's greatest astronomers. He says, my Lord and my creator, I would like to proclaim the magnificence of your works to men to the extent that my limited intelligence can understand. Isaac Newton, now he's 18th century. He's the founder of classical theoretical physics. He says, the admirable arrangement and harmony of the universe could only have come from the plan of an omniscient and omnipotent being. Thomas Edison, 20th century. He said, my utmost respect and admiration is to all engineers, especially the greatest of them all, God. Robert Millikan, he won the Nobel Prize in 1923 for physicists. He says, I can assert most definitely that the denial of faith lacks any scientific basis. In my view, there will never be a true contradiction between faith and science. How about Albert Einstein? What did he say? He won the Nobel Prize in 1921 for modern physics. He says, everyone who's seriously committed to the cultivation of science becomes convinced that in all the laws of the universe is manifest a spirit vastly superior to man and to which we with our powers must feel humble. And I could go on and on. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator God. And not only that, Jesus is the source of life. That's our third point. Jesus is the source of life. It's only God that can give life. And we find this life in his son. If you look at the text, it's verses four and five. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, what John says here, he says, in him was life. So John does a different tack here than the, the synoptic gospels. Matthew, he traces Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham. Luke looks at the, the roots of the first human, which is Adam. But what John does, he goes way past that. He goes into eternity past, no beginning, no end. And what he does, he makes a connection with this idea about life and also light. Now, these are very common in John's writing, and he's, he's going to bring them together here. And the reason is, is because in the beginning, what did God create? Light. And so he's making that connection as Jesus being that creator God. Genesis 1-3 says, and then God said, let there be light. And then there was light. And in the same way, John is making that kind of connection. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So the idea here is that the light went forth from man and brought life. And John's saying that, that, first of all, I think he's talking about physical life. He is the creator of all. He is the creator of life. I think first this idea of, of physical life is just kind of a given because he's creator God. And so he kind of begins with that thought. But not only is he the creator of life, he is the sustainer of life. He says, and the life was the light of men. He's the, he's the source He's the source of physical life, but not only that, we're going to find out that he's the source of all life, including eternal life, everlasting life. And the reason I'm talking about eternal life is because of the word that John uses here. When he says the word life, he doesn't use the word bios, which we get biology, which means physical life. He uses the word zoe, and zoe always means eternal life, and he only uses that word wherever he uses life. And he's making this connection for us. When you look at the Greek, you're like, wow. He is the giver of all life. And particularly 
eternal life. And eternal life only, only, only comes through the Son, who is God in the flesh. Now, Jesus said this. He said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. He's that kind of life. In him is light and life. Now, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. Again, no one comes to the Father except through him. And so Jesus is saying, in the beginning, God the Son created humanity, and he filled them with life. And then sin came in and brought death. So that same God came back to give us eternal life that we lost at the point of sin. He came to save us. And it is only through him that he can impart that life. And so he combines this metaphor of life and light for the purpose of clarity, but also contrast. Light always speaks of what? Truth and holiness, darkness, sin, and lies. And so there are contrasts here using these words. And life and, 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 and light are, are used in, in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not, not walk in darkness, but will have what? The light of life. And so John here in verse 5, he kind of finishes off this thought, and he says, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, when I hear that word comprehend, I'm thinking, oh, the darkness didn't understand? What does that mean? No, when you look at that word, comprehend, it, it is the Greek word katalambano, and what it means is to seize or pull down. It means that the darkness did not seize or pull down the light. It did not have any effect. The light is always in control. So that what I take from this for you is that as every believer, if you know Christ, you have the light of Christ within you. You have victory over sin. You can say no to sin, yes to God. You can fight and fight in the victory of Christ. You have the ability to resist the evil one. This is why James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why? Because you have the light of Christ in you. And it overcomes the domain of darkness, which is the, the enemy, the devil. And this is what 1 John 5, 4 says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that overcomes our flesh. That is our faith. And I want to end with this thought. It says, and all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Because we have the light of Christ, because we have the truth, we have the ability, guys, to live in the goodness and the grace and the ability to, to honor God with our lives unless you choose to follow darkness. I'm ending it with that because I remembered a story that I read by Paul David Tripp. And he was talking about his son and, and his son had, had told his dad that, that he wanted to spend the weekend with a buddy, and, and Paul Tripp said, yes, son, you can do that. And so Saturday night, Paul Tripp said he was with his wife, and he gets a call from the woman where the son was supposed to be. He was at her house, and she called him and said, your son is not here. My son just confessed that, that your son told him to lie, and he never came here. He's not here. I don't know where he is. And so Paul David Tripp, he gets pretty mad and his wife says, you need to pray. And he goes, I don't think I can pray for him right now. She says, I'm not saying to pray for him. I'm saying you need prayer for you. And so this is what he said. He said, I went to my bedroom to pray for God's help. And then it hit me. This is great. He says, because of his love, God had already begun a work to rescue my son's life. 
God was the one who pressed in on the conscience of my son's friend to cause him to confess to his mom. God was the one who gave her the courage to make that difficult call to me. And God was the one giving me time to get a hold of myself emotionally before my son came home. And now rather than wanting to rip into my son, I wanted to be a part of God's grace process to restore him. And so when his son came home, he gave him a couple hours to kind of rest and all that. And then he goes up to his son and this is what he said. He said, do you ever think how much God loves you? And the son said, uh, sometimes. He says, do you ever think how much God's grace operates in your life? And the son's just kind of blinking at him, staring. And then he says, do you know how much of God's grace was working in your life? Even this weekend, and his son said, okay, who told you? And, right? Listen to what Paul says. This is good. He says, you have lived your life in the light. You've made good choices. You've been an easy son to parent. But this weekend, you took a step towards the darkness. Now, you can live in the darkness if you want to, and you can use your friends to cover up your sin, and you can step over God's boundaries, or you can determine to live in God's life. And I am pleading with you, son, live in God's light. And church... I am pleading with you, live in the light of Christ. Because there is no life in darkness. And it is dishonoring to the Lord to move to the darkness. Live in Christ, honor Christ. This is why John wrote this. So that we would know, because Jesus is God, We can have victory in Christ. He paid for it all, past, present, future. And victory is only, only in him, the perfect God-man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. And Lord, I thank you for this truth that Jesus is God. Lord, I thank you that we have the surety of this word And that, Lord, it's throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. And we have such solid ground to stand on. And with this truth, Lord, make us victorious over our own sin. And give us, Lord, both the courage, the ability, and the energy to bring this truth to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I please have you stand?